At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Monday, November 13th, 2023 edition. I am Justin Klein, and it is Monday, and that means Luke Guerrero is back with us to give his insights as we go along this hour. Thanks for being back, Luke. Thanks for having me on this beautiful Monday. Yeah, it's a beautiful fall Monday, getting into the swing of things when it comes to the holidays. Uh, What are we just... About 10 days away from Thanksgiving. So it's moving fast, and this year has moved by fast. Uh, and this hour will go by fast as well. And so we're going to try to move you along in a, an orderly fashion and give you the insights and the data that will help you become a better investor. And it's all about having useful data and having the right perspective. We'll give you our perspective, developed with over 20 plus years of investment experience. We're going to run down the market performance for the day, as well as some show topics, but right after we answer our first caller question. Hey guys, I appreciate the show. I've become a daily listener. I've got a stock high up on my watch list. It's got a forward PE of around 12, and it might even be undervalued right now. Uh, the earnings forecast, return on equity, and a, a number of other metrics, they all look good. I'm wondering what you think of this stock and where support might be and what might be a good entry point. And that stock is Skechers, ticker SKX. Thank you much. All right. Looking at Skechers, this is a name that's been around a long time. I remember back in high school, actually, in the 90s, when this was a kind of an up-and-coming brand, <clears throat> this was, uh, I think it was, who was it? It was a coach of ours who's daughter worked for Skechers. I think we got free Skechers. It was great. We loved it. Um, but so Skechers has been around a long time, but it's still kind of a mid-cap name, about $7.5 billion market cap. No dividend yield here, but that doesn't mean it's a bad investment. <clears throat> no debt, Luke, which you know we like. Are you seeing anything that pops out for you on Skechers? Well, taking a look at Skechers, I'm seeing that relative to its competitors, its margins aren't great. Its net margin is 6%, slightly below average. Uh, I I, I personally love Skechers as a customer. I remember I loved their light-up shoes when I was a child. Mm -hmm. Well, that's – I think they still have the light-up shoes. Not for adults. Not for adults? Okay. Well, no adult sizes? I haven't checked in a while, but I I don't imagine they have for adults. Well, their business is doing pretty well. What's interesting here is that revenue growth has been slowing. About a year ago or so, it was it had about 20% year-over-year revenue growth on average in 2022. But this last quarter and the quarter before, it's only at 8%. So that revenue growth has slowed. But earnings growth has actually picked up. So earnings last quarter were up 53% year-over-year. So 
while those margins are maybe relatively low compared to their their competitors, it has been improving as of late. So uh, that's certainly a positive. Like I said before, one thing I really like is they don't have any debt. <laughs> Enterprise value EBITDA is right around eight times, which a five-year average is about 10. Five-year median is, median is about nine. So it's definitely in the low end of its longer-term trading range in that multiple. Price to sales are right about one time, so nothing uh, too crazy. And, and once again, near the low end of its <laughs> historical multiple trends. So from a valuation perspective, I have no issue with this. But once again, the growth is, is slowing on the, on the top end. And, and you can only keep margins expanding so much. Right, so three quarters in a row, you've had declining sales growth, but increasing earnings growth. So, but analyst upgrade trends are positive. Is that what you're seeing, Luke? That's what I'm seeing as well. I also see that they do have some debt in the form of term loans, but like you said, it's minimal. Yeah, it's pretty minimal. Yeah, I mean they have some debt, but yeah, it balanced out by by the cash they have in their balance sheet. So the technicals are okay. That's obviously pulled back with the whole market since the uh, the top in August. And let me look at a, a ratio here. I always like to look at the ratio between Skechers or the underlying stock and uh, its closest indices. So like the Russell, for example, would be this one. And it is outperforming. So I'm, I'm okay with this. I'm big on companies that have minimal debt, that have good positive cash flow. The valuation's in line with this. The technicals are fine, not amazing, but fine. So I'm going to give Skechers a thumbs up in my book because I, I just love love the that that cash flow and the low debt, and a good profitability metric. All right, so that was Skechers, but we have a lot of ground to cover over the next 40 minutes, and time permitting, we're going to touch on a few things. One is in regards to what is an inverse ETF. And inverse ETFs can act like insurance for an investor's portfolio. And so for this topic, I'm going to define what an inverse ETF is and talk about inverse ETF investing as well as how this can protect you from market volatility. On top of that, we're going to touch on the Moody's downgrade of the U.S. debt rating or at least putting us on negative watch and what that might mean for markets and future spending by government. Also, AI is starting to analyze more than just random data on the internet. It's going. It's starting to analyze earnings call transcripts. And what might this mean for the future of analysis of these, uh, these earnings calls? And then lastly, inflation. Inflation has been coming down across the world. But some countries are doing better at, at this than others. Some, it's, uh, it's come down dramatically. Others, it's remained sticky high. So we're going to look at that. We also have some voice bank questions. One is on municipal bonds. The other is on toast, T-O-S-T. And we'll try to fin- fit in an iTunes view question, as well as my market perspective, which touches on the history of minimum wage here in the United States. Now, let's talk about the market performance today. A kind of mixed bag overall, Luke. And I think everyone's kind of waiting for that CPI d- data that's supposed to come out tomorrow, right? Yeah, that's correct. You know, the S&P 500 was 
pretty much flat, down slightly. It traded in, in a range between down around 40 basis points, up around 40 basis points, but finished the day pretty flat. But like you said, there wasn't much going on other than you know the New York Fed survey of consumer expectations showing that inflation expectations dropped in October to 3.6% from September. But I think a lot of people are just waiting to see what the CPI data shows to see if we're making more progress or if we've retraced some of the gains we had on CPI. Yeah, and, and what might that mean for the interest rate path for the Fed as well as demand for the bonds, which we know there's a lot of supply coming on board uh, consistently. So uh, big data coming, big data point coming out tomorrow, especially after last week was pretty much a dearth of economic data. So not much there. And we're coming into the end of earnings season as well. But right now we're going to go to a quick break. Please remember that you can call anytime and leave your questions on the Best Talk Voice Bank for this. If you're listening via our live stream or on AM 1220 radio in the Silicon Valley area, you can call right now at 888-99-CHART. Justin Klein talks about the KPP Financial Premium Newsletter. I want to remind you that this is a time where you probably need some guidance and you're tuning in to try to get our view of the markets. And we only have an hour here. And and sometimes the way I distill each day can be maybe not enough, maybe not enough time. And so our premium newsletter is a great tool for especially newer investors trying to learn some things. The KPP Financial Premium Newsletter comes to your mailbox every Saturday. Learn how to analyze the market. Learn what the economic numbers mean. Learn how to manage a portfolio. Maybe get an idea of what are good companies to be at least looking at. Maybe you don't buy it today, but you should always have a watch list of companies that, hey, these are interesting. These have good businesses. And if they get the right price, maybe I should buy them. So our newsletter is a great tool for that. Subscribe anytime at investtalk.com. Justin Klein is here and ready to take your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen Justin. This is Kevin calling from Southern California. I've been looking at municipal bonds, trying to figure out if getting some exposure to that is good to diversify my fixed income portion of my um, investment portfolio. I am in the highest tax bracket again, and I'm wondering... Is it better to buy a higher coupon rate with a higher price bond or a lower priced bond with yield to worse being equal? Trying to get an idea of what are the best options. Thanks again, as always. All right. Uh, glad you made that point about being in the highest tax bracket. That certainly is pretty much the most important factor when you're looking at municipal bonds. What tax rate are you in? It only pretty much makes sense for those that are in the highest tax bracket. Now, should you buy, basically he's asking, should I buy municipal bonds that are yielding little and are at a steep discount or that have higher coupons and a less of a discount? Most of them are discounts now, right? Because of where interest rates are, are, have, have moved. But a lot of this is more of a, once again, a tax question, because when you get those coupon payments, you're going to, uh, well, I guess you're not, you're not getting taxed. Now there's, yeah, I always think of this on corporate side, 
but you're not getting taxed either way. <clears throat> I guess it would be your income needs. That'd be the biggest question is what income are you trying to get off of this, of these bonds? If it's a necessity for you, then you want to hire a coupon. But if you're just trying to get a portfolio diversifier and you're trying to get a good after-tax yield, then I don't think it would matter. Anything to add, Luke? Yeah, I think it pretty much comes down to how would you like to see the gains from holding those bonds? If you need income, like you said, then you're probably more wanting to have municipal bonds with higher coupon payments because it's going to be more regular income rather than just getting it from that capital gains uh, aspect of holding a bond. But I think that, like you said, it, it comes down to making sure that you're in a tax bracket that makes this beneficial and then figuring out what the purpose of holding these bonds is for you. Exactly. All right. <clears throat> Thanks for the call. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. PW Town 84 says, I'd love to get your thoughts on SWKS. It's been falling lately. I'm considering buying a position. <clears throat> Would you share some thoughts on the company and the current price for me? Now, this is Skyworks. We actually own this for. So managed accounts, we've owned it uh, pretty much since middle part of last year. <clears throat> it did great going into the end of last year, beginning of this year, and it's obviously pulled back on slower, slower smartphone demand growth. <clears throat> but it is a very profitable business, and basically they make wireless chips for handsets. And... These are very important chips because that's mainly how these products communicate is wirelessly. And so while their business has pulled back, it is pretty cheap. For us, it's trading about a 30% discount to its true value. It's going to benefit from the growth of 5G. And so we like that. <clears throat> now, the biggest worry, I think longer term, is if... Apple has Apple tries to mainly Apple right because they're uh, the most important player in the smartphone space if they come out and produce their own RF components. Now they've tried to do that internally and they've, they've pretty much failed. They haven't done a good job of, of of making that happen. So that's why they continue to use Skyworks products and they're still the best in the business. So uh, it is around support. It's been strengthening recently. And obviously, we like it. So I give it a thumbs up. Thanks for the call. All right, this is Invest Talk now with more than 56.7 million downloads. Thanks all to you. Give us a call now. We're ready for your questions at 888 99 Chart. Invest Talk is all about above average investing for the average investor. And the question is during a market downturn, do dividends stay fairly steady? Um, I wanted to see if you thought that that was a safer place to park the money for a long term. My question has to do with insuring residential rental properties. Just kind of wondering if this stock is a value trap. What's your question? You're the best person to ask it. 888 99 Chart.
Peasley and Justin Klein are ready to answer your finance and investment questions. Call Invest Talk 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to George. He is in Washington State and he's looking at Insulate Corp. P-O-D-D is the symbol. Do you own it or looking to buy it? Considering to take a small position, trying to retrieve almost 50%, and it seems to be stabilizing. And there are some analyst ratings that predict that could possibly go back a little bit. Well, uh, this is a company that has pretty good growth, pretty strong growth. And, but that growth is slowing. Last quarter, revenues were up 27%, with a uh, quarter before that, it was at 32%. Uh, earnings are accelerating. Oh, that's the positive. But the technicals have turned over from being uh, around 130, sorry, $330 per share earlier this year. Now we're at 163 And I would imagine this is probably some worries about the Ozempic craze. But you know, will that really dampen the effects or the the growth of of diabetes? I I'm still not sold either way, to be honest with you. I I do know I, I have a friend actually works for a company uh, called Twin Health that basically guarantees the curing of of diabetes in just a handful of months um, through monitoring and AI, etc. So, and they use. Ozempic for for those um, those cases in many cases. Um, so <clears throat> I do worry a bit that this downtrend is telling us something. Um, and Luke, I know you are seeing a lot of debt on their balance sheet as well. Yeah, that's correct. I'm seeing that their net debt to EBITDA is ten times higher uh, than its industry competitors. It looks like their EBIT to interest expenses only three. So they're operating on pretty thin margins in terms of uh, their revenue relative to their debt. Yeah, and their free cash flow is negative. Cash from operations is only 150 million on a macro cap of 11 billion. Price sales is seven and a half, very expensive. Enterprise value is 50, five zero, also very expensive, although obviously that's come down. But I, I just can't buy this. Um, I don't like those headwinds from Ozempic and the potential for there being, and I know there is, I know there are increasing tools that are becoming more and more effective for, for diabetes. So, uh, and it's competitive space, you know, Abbott has a business and there's a lot of public companies now that are big into, uh, the insulin, uh, administering and monitoring. And this is just way, 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 way too expensive for a company that has very thin, thin margins. So uh, while technicals have slightly improved over the past month, it's still in a long, strong downtrend and remains way too expensive. So I'm passing on Insulate Corporation. All right. Now, our focus point looks in the story behind this question. What is an inverse ETF and how can it protect you from market volatility. Now, Luke, I know you used to run, uh, help run an ETF. Uh, did you come across a lot of these inverse ETFs? And uh, what are your thoughts on them in general? Well, generally speaking, I think investors should realize that not all ETFs are created the same, 
right? Remember that ETFs are just a structure. So anytime you have a structure of a fund and there's a market for people who want to invest in a particular strategy, they're going to arise. And it doesn't necessarily mean that those ETFs are right for everybody. Now, inverse ETFs is not something that I would have had an opportunity to manage nor something that I really came across because they aren't really meant for long-term long holders. Definitely not, but there is an increasing demand for them. Morningstar Direct says that worldwide and here in the U.S., U.S. inverse ETFs are uh, inverse ETFs have an AUM as of June of 103 billion, and last year was record inflows, representing 3.7 percent of all ETFs purchased last year. It's pretty high, and. For everyone out there, ETFs, inverse ETFs, typically will track a broad market indices. So they'll either be short the NASDAQ or the Russell or the S&P. And they'll use swaps to do that. And two of the biggest reasons investors buy inverse ETFs, one is to hedge a position. Other is to just simply bet on the downside of a particular sector, industry, or the market as a whole. Now, the two biggest issuers of inverse ETFs, ProShares and Direction Funds, even they admit that these aren't buy and hold investments. They're trading vehicles only, especially the leveraged ETFs that are out there. A lot of leverage two times, three times short the NASDAQ or the S&P. And for those that are, they don't want to take the the time they want a simple way to play a short-term direction of the market. I think they can be valuable, but as a buy and hold doesn't really make sense. Now, could you be short against the box? Maybe you have an S and P 500 index fund and you buy the SH, which is a simple, simply the single levered short S and P fund by iShares. And, but the ex- expense ratio is high. So it's 0.89% versus for the plain vanilla SP long SPY ETF, that's 0.03%, so three basis points. So a big, big difference. So <clears throat> for everyone out there looking at inverse ETFs, if you ever use them, use them for very short periods of time. All right, on the next Invest Talk, we'll look into stories set up by this headline. Proof that staying invested beats timing the market. That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your calls at 888 chart At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. 
HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You've got a portfolio to grow and protect, and this is no time to lose focus. So get your finance and investment questions together and call Steve Peasley and Justin Klein. They're ready with their unbiased answers. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go to Gene in North Carolina. How are you doing, Gene? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I had a of question course. for uh, for you and and Luke. It, it's about what you just spoke about the, the um, inverse ETFs and maybe even the leveraged ETFs, especially from ProShares. I always seem to get a, that special K one tax form that's associated with them at the end of the year. Can you comment about that aspect and whether that can be something that's predicted before you buy it? I was unaware of that. That makes them even less attractive. K1s are never fun to deal with. Uh, why, do you, Luke, why would they have K1s? Can you think of a reason why? Uh, I think it might be because the funds are generally treated as partnerships for tax purposes. Mm. So they're, I think they're, that's right. Yeah, investors are allocated a share of the fund's income. So because of that, they're going to get a K1 at the end of the year. Now, do you know if that's all of the pro shares or just certain... Many, many of them, but you know, I think that's many correct now that I think about it. They, they are LPs, yes. Yeah, it might be yeah. because of the the structure of how they invest because most ETFs are going to be long long or short or short things, but they tend to use a lot of options and a lot of swaps. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they might not be able to register under the same ETF rules that allow for non-partnerships. Ah, gotcha. That, that might make sense. Yeah, interesting. Well, that's a, a good point, Gene. I did not not know that um, since we don't really use them, um, but certainly that's a factor. K ones are, like I said, never fun, especially with they're with if they're within a particular tax deferred account, uh, like an IRA or a four hundred one k. Now, I guess the positive would be they don't pay. They pay income, though, right? Typically, would they owe income if they're shorting? Well, I guess they're using swaps. Why would they get a K one if there's no income, Luke? I guess it's. A, I think wow. it's generally the the structure of their investments, and they're also subject to the the sixty forty options rule. Typically, mm-hmm. where sixty percent is taxed at long term, forty percent short term, regardless of the holding period. Got it. So, so a lot of complexity. Overall, a lot of complexity, and <clears throat> another reason to mostly stay away from them, unless you have a really specific purpose, <clears throat> and you're willing to file a K one. All right. Now let's touch on our perspective today that looks at the history of minimum wage in the United States. Now, minimum wage legislation emerged in the late 1800s to try to battle the sweatshops and in the wake of the Industrial Revolution. And so these sweatshops employed a lot of people, paying them what were considered non-living wages. 
And that was on top of having long work hours, bad, unsanitary, and unsafe work, work conditions. And from 1890s to the 1920s, during what was called the Progressive Era, states <clears throat> passed minimum wage laws. But it wasn't until 1933 when FDR, in the wake of the Great Depression, or during the Great Depression, found or basically passed into law the minimum wage. But I know this, Luke, it was later found to be unconstitutional. So it took them until 1938 when the Fair Labor Standards Act established the federal minimum wage at 25 cents an hour, equivalent to $5.20 today. Still doesn't sound like a lot, does it? No, it does not. No. And its purchasing power peaked in 1968 at $1.60. And you found a really interesting chart, Luke, about the the real – was it the real and nominal value of federal minimum wage in the United States? And it's been flat since 2009. And before that, it pretty much marched up almost every year. So a lot of people said it's overdue to increase. Um, but, you know, it's just continued to decline. Now, it's still at, was it $7.25 an hour? That's pretty wild. So I think this will change. Uh, obviously, the, we're kind of in the start, I believe, of a new progressive era with labor rights, what's happening with unions, uh, I think, in a, in a big way, changing the way people look at corporations and little input from government. I think this is a pressure on those businesses, Luke, that are dependent on labor that they're simply paying minimum wage. I remember there uh, there continues to be pressure. I know here in California, aren't we raising it to 15 over the we, next three years? We are. Yeah. So that put pressure on companies like McDonald's, um, and I think that will only continue. Now, in 2019, 1.6 million Americans are no more than the federal minimum wage. That was about 1% of all workers, but 2% of those that were paid hourly. <clears throat> Less than half of those work full-time, so a lot of these are part-time workers. Almost half were aged 16 to 25, and more than 60% worked in were basically waiters, right? Waiters and waitresses uh, receiving additional tips. But still, this is pressure from across the board, across different states, and on the federal level. And the big question is, when will that actually come to fruition? I think a $15 minimum wage federally is probably inevitable. It's just, I think, is going to take the proper pressure um, from, you think, constituents, Luke? What do you think is going to change this and then ultimately put pressure on the, the, the businesses? Yeah, I think it's difficult to say because if you think about it, as of 2021, only 55.8% of all wages were paid were hourly paid employees and only 1.6%, I'm sorry, 1.4% of workers in the United States earned the, the minimum wage. So typically when you expect constituent pressure to uh, make laws change, there aren't many people in the United States that are earning the minimum wage. So it's kind of difficult to say what's going to eventually push that upward on a federal yeah, I level. Think, yeah, it, that is an interesting point because, yes, while it's popular, a minimum wage is popular, even even on the right. I think, what was it, Florida? 
they voted for a minimum wage increase the last election or in 2020, but Trump won the state, mm-hmm. right? So it, it's becoming more of a bipartisan uh, issue, uh, but it doesn't impact very many people. I think it's just more of principle that if you work 40 hours that you should be paid some sort of min- a, a living wage. <clears throat> and uh, that's ultimately going to, uh, like I said, put pressure on those companies that uh, are, are not doing so at the current time. So it will be very interesting to see how the dynamics uh, play out uh, going forward. All right. Let's talk a bit about this downgrade by Moody's. Well, I guess it wasn't a downgrade. It was uh, putting the U.S. credit rating on watch. And this is in some ways long overdue. The S&P dropped the U.S. from AAA to AA plus in 2011. Fitch did it last year. or Sorry, earlier this year. And so this is basically saying that they are on watch to to downgrade us from AAA uh, across all three major rating agencies. Now, what was different to me, Luke, uh, about this announcement was before there was a lot of, or at least on the Fitch's announcement, it was more about, hey, Congress is dysfunctional, which we know it is. They are playing with defaulting on the debt, uh, with not raising the debt ceiling, et cetera. Uh, but this one has doesn't really talk much about that. It talks a lot more about the rising cost of interest. And it expects interest payments relative to the revenue to rise from around 9.7% last year to 26% by 2033. Basically, less than a decade away. And Moody sees interest payments relative to GDP will rise to around 4.5% in 2033 from 1.9% today. So about a quarter of our revenue, tax revenue, is going to come, is going to be paid out just in interest in the next decade. Now, Luke, this kind of spooked the markets after hours, but as we talked about earlier, there wasn't a big market move. When will rubber hit the road here? You know, I don't know if it will. I think that relative to the other ratings agencies, I tend to agree with what Moody's did more than with what Standards and Poor's and, and Fitch did in that Moody's had a statement where they affirmed the U.S.'s rating, saying that formidable credit strengths continue to preserve the sovereign's rating, in particular exceptional economic strength, high institutional governance strength, and the unique and central roles of the U.S. dollar and treasury bond market in the global financial system. So to me, that means there is a problem with fiscal deficits. We all know this. There's no end in sight to that problem because, like you mentioned, Congress is dysfunctional. But at the end of the day, the U.S. dollar and the Treasury bond play such a central role that it doesn't make any sense to downgrade the U.S.'s credit rating. And I agree with that. Yes, you're right. That that is that, There are definitely some strengths that will, I think, allow us to muddle through for an extended period of time, probably longer than most people realize. And you could even say today, right, the, the, the debt situation has been kind of snowballing for a while now. But as you said, the diversity of the economy as well as the central role of the dollar globally has kind of helped stave off those concerns. But in some ways, wouldn't you argue it's that that role is kind of enabling 
government on both sides of the aisle to just ignore this and not think about uh, any change to that status quo. We talked even on the webinar last week about how, you know, you can't really, you can mess around with the discretionary spending. But if you take this year, pretty much entitlements and interest payments are going to cover all of tax revenue. So if you're serious about cutting debt or getting the fiscal situation more in line with sustainability, then you have to touch entitlements. So and the entitlements are, you know, they're kind of the, the third rail, right? So what is, what will get government to act a little more responsibly? I wish I had an answer to that. But I think that at the end of the day, these credit ratings are supposed to say how safe is an investment in the sovereign debt of a country. And so regardless of fiscal deficits, because the U.S.'s position is what it is in the global economy, I don't see an imminent risk, and apparently neither did Moody's, to the U.S.'s credit rating and therefore its ability to pay back its debts. Yeah, I don't think this is really an ability to pay. Uh, it is more of how how can – what is the path forward, I think, really? And – uh, you know, I guess the credit ratings are all about the ability to repay those debts um, and, and not default. And I don't think the U.S. government is ever going to default. No country that's ever been in control of their debt has defaulted nominally, meaning they don't pay down their debts. They just simply find ways to infl- try to inflate away that debt, um, which is probably ultimately the path here. And so... You know, it still makes sense for us to have a high credit rating, but I think the the release valve for all this is going to be in the currency markets, uh, and I think that's ultimately how uh, you eventually see problems is probably in the currency markets. Yeah, right. I think now, it's, it's break- more of a warning to non-U.S. countries that, mm-hmm. if anything, who's going to pay the price for the fiscal deficits, and that's external parties, not the U.S., trying to lend. Yeah. Well, that's also why you continue to see uh, a decline in foreign direct investment in U.S. Treasuries uh, for, for, you know, in general. Obviously, there's still countries that buy a lot of ours, which are like Japan, uh, but obviously China and other uh, major countries are doing less of that. So um, they see the writing on the wall, um, both fiscally and geopolitically. Uh, and so uh, that'll be interesting to watch as we go along over the next decade. All right. As regular listeners know. The Invest Talk Voice Bank never closes. You can call your call with your question anytime, day and night, at 888-99-CHARTS. Let's play another question now. Hey, Stephen Justin. Bill from Philadelphia here. Justin, I guess this one's more for you. Toast. Take a symbol. T-O-S-T. I was interested in picking it up for some time now, and I know that uh, you liked it as well. They just had their earnings, and I mean, the numbers seem pretty good, but the, uh, the stock uh, drops close to 20%. I uh, wanted to kind of get your thoughts now on if this is a great uh, buying opportunity or if this is something that we should hold off and see where it lands uh, after a few days or something like that and then possibly pick up some. Or if uh, you, you, you just think it's uh, not the stock uh, anymore. Looking forward to hearing your, your thoughts on this and uh, thanks for what you guys do. Bye-bye. All right, looking at toast. Now, let me correct you. And I, I think I, you always have to listen to exactly what I'm saying. I've never said I liked 
toast the stock. I said I like toast the product. It's a huge difference here, okay? And I think this has still is a company with great potential. But if you go back and listen to any of the previous shows where I talked about Toast, I always said product is great, but the management of this company, I think, is is off. And mainly because they're growing, but they're not doing it in any uh, in a profitable way. And all they're doing is burning capital and issuing more shares. Look at the shares outstanding. They're going from up and to the right. And that I've said that many times. That's a problem until they can stop issuing shares. And they, until they can start actually producing positive cash flows consistently and growing those cash flows, then it's a tough stock to really invest in. Um, and that hasn't changed. Uh, anything you're seeing on your side, Luke? No debt, but still not making any money. So I would pass. Well, they don't need debt because they just issue more shares. Exactly. Hey, earth to the, to the, to the management. Stop issuing more shares. End it now and get your company on the right path. And still it's not. The product is good, but the company is not. All right. Let's go to a break. Give me a call now at 888-99-CHART. One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Hey, I was trying to reach Justin, Luke, or Steve. I'm trying to call you guys about ticker symbol L E C O. This is Andrew from Atlanta. And I uh, just wanted to know your analysis on this. If you could look at the company's name is Lincoln Electric Holdings Incorporated. And uh, just looking on my new Charles Schwab platform, it just got converted from TD. And was curious your analysis, if you could let me know. We really like the show. Thank you. All right. Looking at elect- Lincoln Electric, a manufacturer of welding, cutting, and brazing products around the world. And it has the top market share within this space. Very good company. Long-term profitability is is very consistent. In fact, it's near record highs, right, Luke? Uh, so uh, you would put this in probably the top quartile of uh, pro- the prof metrics, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And it's not just there now. It's been consistently growing. I mean, over the past five years, it's... EBITDA growth is significantly higher than its competitors. It has minimal debt, and the debt it has, it pushed out beyond 2033 for the most part. I'm not really seeing anything I don't like. Yeah, this is a very good business, good cash flows. Enterprise value to EBITDA is right around 15 times. I would say that's around the long-term average. So I would say it's not cheap or expensive. I would say it's fairly valued. The technicals are fine. It's a very good business, but uh, you know I'm okay paying a fair price for a very good business. So uh, I'm going to give Lincoln Electric a thumbs up. All right. Let's lastly touch on, touch on AI and the fact that one thing AI is allowing investors to do is to analyze the conference calls and not just look at the words that the 
management teams are saying, but how they are saying them as well to glean whether or not they are being forthright completely about the trajectory of their business. Now, for many years, funds have used algorithms to look at just the call transcripts. So the words that people are are saying on these calls, and they're using natural language processing to glean signals about the true trend of the business. Uh, So Luke, is this that next evolution that is going to allow investors to really hone in on the true trend of the business as opposed to the kind of fluffy language the C-suite will use many times? I mean, certainly it's the next iteration. I think the question that has to be asked is how effective is it going to be? I think that some of the concerns that I have hearing about it is how do you, from person to person, use a model to analyze the way they talk given that they could switch up the person who's presenting. If a new CEO steps in and all of a sudden he's doing the earnings calls, how how good is the model that you had for the previous one? Are companies now just going to spend more money with PR firms that are teaching them to hide their true emotions? So certainly it's it's the next iteration of using that natural language processing to try and glean an advantage in the market in terms of trading. But how effective is it going to be in the long term is an entirely different question. Yeah, that's my biggest worry is that people will maybe extrapolate the few times where AI gets it right and how truly accurate is it, especially because maybe these people are speaking, their their native language is different than English, right? So they may have an accent, for example. And so the insights certainly are going to improve over time, and there are certainly limitations. But I think it's just another tool. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how readily available these tools will get over time. There is a company called Speechcraft Analytics that does this already, uh, but it certainly will likely be a tool that we rolled out on other platforms over time as well. All right, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, It's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein is chief executive officer of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial. Thank you for listening and your comments and questions are welcome on our 24-hour listener line at 888-99-CHART.